Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello and welcome to Beyond the Noise, the podcast series from PR Week. I'm Frankie Oliver, your host and founder of New Society, and today I'm joined by Editor-in-Chief Danny Rogers. Hi. Hi, Frankie. How are you? I'm good. Looking forward to Christmas. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Yeah, we, um, we've had a busy week on PR Week because we've just launched the first ever uh, awards ranking table covering the whole of the PR industry over the last three years. So um, that sounds like an eye-watering job. <laughs> well, it's been it's been quite a big task, but it's really worth checking out actually because, um, as I say, it ranks all the agencies and organisations and how many awards they've won over the past three years. So, Amazing. Um, there's some really interesting results in there. So uh, that's the reason I'm a bit, uh, bit jaded today. Sorry. Well, I'm sure we'll all look forward to reviewing that new awards table. So now on to um, today's topic, which is all about the World Cup. And we are joined by two very special guests for this uh, great conversation. Paul Charles, a leading travel and tourism expert who runs the PC agency. Hi, Paul. Hi there. And Lucy Hutchinson, head of PR at one of the UK's best sports PR and marketing agencies, Pitch Marketing Group. Hi, Lucy. Hi there. So as I mentioned, we are here to talk about the World Cup and what it has done for Brand Cutter. We are now at the halfway point of the tournament, which began with a really rocky and controversial start due to the country's multitude of human rights issues. So have things now settled down? And what will the long-term impact potentially be for Qatar and FIFA? So, Paul, really to you first, you've just returned from a trip to Saudi Arabia, I believe. Is that correct? Yes. I have. That's right. Yeah, to a travel summit there just in the region. So, What's your feeling now in terms of brand cutter and and really how it's going to fare long term after this really very difficult start? Well, I hate to say it so early on in the podcast, but it feels like this is a game of two halves for uh, Qatar. I think they started off with a lot of criticism. They faced a barrage from the world's media around all sorts of issues, which I'm sure we'll talk about, such as alcohol and whether they were fit 
for hosting the competition and, of course, how they won the competition in the first place, which was the subject of a, uh, a lot of controversy. And then now, if you take how the competition is growing towards its end point over the next couple of weeks into the final, I think Cato is coming out of this in a much better way, a much more positive light, because the football is doing the talking now, which is what Cato wanted all along. They wanted the football to be the showcase and for people to forget about what was going on around the football stadia themselves. And I think that started to happen because the quality of the football has been so strong in these knockout stages that most people are forgetting about the environment beyond the stadia, even though we shouldn't be forgetting, of course, what's going on beyond the stadia. So I would say it was a really poor start, but now Qatar is coming out of this in a much stronger light. And do you think, imagining the end of the World Cup, what, what that ending potentially is going to be like? Well, ironically, of course, you're going to get a superb final, I'm sure. You're going to see uh, a fantastic winner, whether it's Brazil or someone else, but certainly Brazil are the favourites at the time we're, we're talking. Um, and I think then you'll find that countries will say this has been a good World Cup. I think they'll say there's been no violence or no obvious violence anyway in the stadia themselves, perhaps because of the lack of alcohol. Um, that's debatable. But they'll also say that Cat has taken more of a backseat. They've let the football do the talking. They've let FIFA take some of the collateral damage in terms of the controversy itself because FIFA put itself at the forefront of the discussion early on in the World Cup. And they'll say that Fee that Qatar has delivered on the infrastructure and the quality of the stadia, which have been generally superb because they were newly built. How they were built is another matter, which mm. I'm sure we'll discuss. But they, the quality of the infrastructure has been really good. And if you do any competition, whether it's football, rugby, cricket, if the quality of the stadia are good, if the infrastructure works, if there's no violence, then you can tick a lot of boxes and Qatar will be able to do that. Paul, um you know, you, you've just been to Saudi Arabia, and obviously Saudi Arabia has many human rights issues. Were you surprised at the level of criticism at, of Qatar as opposed to, say, Saudi at the moment? Well, there's enormous competition between the Middle East regions, whether it's Saudi Arabia, Qatar, the, uh, the Gulf region as a whole. They're all competing against each other for share of voice at the moment. And how each one can be seen to be perhaps more progressive than the other, certainly in the eyes of the West and uh, in Asian eyes as well, because they're all trying to attract more investment from China, for example. Um What's very interesting to me over the last few weeks is that Qatar has not progressed publicly as far as I would have expected. It's not shown a willingness to necessarily change on the key issue that they've been criticized for uh, of rights, diversity, LGBTQ+, etc. Whereas actually when you look at somewhere like Saudi, having been there and had some of my perceptions radically changed, um, they are progressing. They know they're not getting everything right, but they want to be seen to be progressing. And Qatar, I, I think, is in a very different place. I'm not sure they are progressing. I think they're being fairly static and they're just 
keeping a low profile and letting, as I say, FIFA do the talking or the football do the talking. Whereas Saudi Arabia, if you compare it with Qatar, is saying we are changing, we're giving more rights to women, we are embracing more of the world, we want many million more visitors every year. They're having to change to catch up with where Qatar used to be in terms of the number of visitors. So Lucy, would you agree? Do you have similar views about where brand Qatar is right now? Absolutely. I'd echo a lot of the the sentiments that Paul has shared, actually. I think, you know, it's that age old thing of, you know, challenges in the run up to uh, the launch of something, but then actually when the event itself starts and the sport and the excitement takes over, so many of those things in, in the minds of many kind of fade into the background, the power and the drama of of the sport itself. You know, that's the best sort of form of unscripted content that there is. And I think the, the points that Paul makes around that kind of uh, move away from the challenges that, that pre- predated um, the tournament beginning and moving towards something that feels exciting and compelling for fans is, is absolutely right. You know, from a sporting perspective, the stadium, the stadium are in great shape. You have, um, you know, sporting legends there. You've got Ronaldo, you've got Messi with their kind of last dance, I guess, handing over the baton to the new stars. You've got Foden and Bellingham and Mbappe kind of staking his claim as the world's best. And I think actually people are swept away with the passion and the excitement of that. There's nothing more passionate for many than the World Cup. And I think that kind of emotion is is driving people away from the negative perceptions that they previously had about the host nation and, and, and towards something a lot more positive. And I think we should expect probably to see that the brands who have been aligned uh, with this tournament recovering perhaps from quite a lot of the criticism that they'd seen prior as a result of that, because I think ultimately um, people's uh, enthusiasm for the World Cup will will put them in a in a much more positive mindset for the brands that are affiliated with it. So, Lucy, I mean, you are a, a sports and sponsorship specialist. How do you sense the sponsors are feeling about Qatar as a as a host, uh, both for this event and any future events? Well, I think it kind of echoes what we were just saying about the um, the process prior to the tournament versus the process of the tournament itself. I think in the run up to the event, uh, sponsors were probably feeling a huge amount of trepidation at being aligned with obviously so many of the challenges and, and very problematic issues that were coming to light. But actually, I think in terms of how they're feeling now, they're probably feeling largely pretty positive. I think, as I said, the, the kind of average fans enthusiasm and, and passion for the World Cup will, will create a halo effect on them. And I don't think necessarily they will be as impacted by the problems in the host nation um, as people might have previously thought. Because the um, there was that amazing story about Budweiser sort of not knowing that alcohol wasn't going to be available in the stadia. Mm. And um, I think it tweeted, God, this is awkward or something before uh, <laughs> yeah. dele- deleting that tweet. Um <laughs> So they must have been pretty angry when um, Casa changed its mind on the eve of the World Cup. Absolutely. And I mean, particularly in an instance where, you know, in our world, we we tend to like to pre-plan and lock down our messaging as carefully and with as much consideration as possible, being put on the back foot at the last moment will have been extremely difficult. But I think in terms of recovering from that moment and moving towards future sponsorship activities, um, we might find that things actually land more positively than we expected. Certainly, you'd hope so for Budweiser, given they're signed up um, to, to, align, to be aligned with the, uh, the next World Cup in, in North America to the tune of £63 million. I imagine they're, they're hopeful that things will move into a, into a better space 
as the rest of the tournament pans out. I mean, let's not forget that some of the issues do very much still exist. We, we mustn't remove ourselves from those issues that were there before the first ball was kicked. All that's happened is the media have got bored with that story. Uh, and, and there's been nothing to replace it, which is why Qatar's come out of this currently pretty well. There hasn't been any violence, which you often get at a major competition, certainly where drink is involved. There hasn't been the infrastructure collapse that some suspected might occur and hasn't occurred. There haven't been stories of fans um, consistently being stuck outside. It did happen early on, but but not on a consistent basis. And so the media have not found anything else apart from the football to zone in on. But let's not forget those criticisms that were there early on are still there. Those issues around diversity, those issues around lack of pace and acceptability in the country itself. And the fact that other countries within the Gulf region are moving at pace themselves at improving their image with the world on diversity issues. So Qatar can't stand back and forget these issues. They're still very much there for anybody visiting Absolutely. But surely this is a position, I totally understand what you mean about the media moving on and, and really a sort of sense of resignation really around that issue and that story. And we've now just got to get on and actually focus on the football and the tournament. But really, this is a blip in history, isn't it? This can't happen again. I mean, there's just no way that FIFA could potentially go into, unless you're about to tell me that they are, but that that they could, you know, really run the gauntlet on 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 this this sort of decision making again about going into a country with such horrific human rights issues. I mean, it is for brand football, it is just not okay. I don't think. I mean, do you think do you think they will have learned that lesson? Well, I think I think FIFA will say there's a precedent now, and actually they could do anything with any country. They, they've uh, given it to Russia. They've given it to Qatar. Uh, they've successfully, so far anyway, hosted a World Cup without alcohol. I think it raises all sorts of interesting uh, questions for future World Cups. And for example, you know, will alcohol be needed in stadia in the future if you can host it successfully and there's no violence? Will there now be a groundswell of opinion saying, this is the model for the future. We don't have to worry about massive amounts of policing anymore because there's no alcohol to cause uh, violence in the stadia. I think there will be FIFA delegates who are saying, well, we'll give it to the country that is the best country, whether they've got human rights issues or not, because we've done it before. Once you set a precedent as a major organization within sport, you can do it time and time again in future. Is it a precedent though? I mean, the precedent that's been set is that it's been an absolute PR car crash, hasn't it? So yes, they went there, but there were significant repercussions. And I think repercussions that will last for a long time. I mean, it looks like they can make up any excuse that they want around why they just justify why they're there in the first place. And of course they could say there is now a precedent, but surely culturally and within the sport and young people watching it and, you know, the furore that's being created around it. I mean, it just would just be crazy to con- to make that sort of decision making again, wouldn't it? Yes, but often you remember what you've last seen. And if the last images you see and the perception you get in the final knockout stages is of brilliant football, um, successfully being hosted, fantastic stadia, lots of smiling faces, uh, and a great final to remember, 
that's probably the last thing most people will remember, especially younger audiences. Uh, yes, a huge amount has been spent on this World Cup. Is it £128 billion or something, according to Forbes, which has been spent on this World Cup? I'm sure that will continue. FIFA is in the game of money. Money talks. Yeah, I, what I think is so interesting is that, you know, we, we have criticised Qatar for various things um, in the past few weeks. But actually, when major sporting or football events have been held in Europe, they haven't been so great because we only need to think back to the summer of last year when Wembley hosted the Euros final. It was a complete disaster. There were people breaking in, arrests, people uh, leaving because they were worried about their kids' safety. And then then there was the um, Champions League final in Paris this spring, where, um, again, it was a disaster and there's a, been all sorts of documentaries about how unsafe it was. So I think you, you have a good point that Qatar's not ideal on human rights, but possibly on safety and efficiency, preferable. I went to the um, Women's Euro final and the experience was outstanding. There was no alcohol. There was hardly any police. You know, that that experience, just because it was in London, it was more that it was actually the women's and not the men's. Mm. And I suppose it's, 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 are those two issues right to come together that yes, it was well run versus, well, actually, if you go outside of the stadium, let's look at all the other things that are associated. And those feel like two separate things. Lucy, would you agree with that? I would be inclined to agree with that. Yeah, I do think it is about the experience that is wrapped around those those key matches. But I think just to to go back to Paul's initial point as well, ultimately what happens next and the decision making that will be made around this will always come back to commercial imperatives. As as you said, Paul, money talks. And I think to answer your initial question, Frankie, yes, I do think this could happen again in terms of FIFA aligning themselves with another Middle Eastern host nation for other tournaments existing in a, in a similar vein, because ultimately what will drive this is commercial imperatives. And, and I think there's every possibility that the promise of vast investment will, will trump everything else, will overcome all of those other aspects. So just to that point, then thinking about if money talks, if it starts to become, you know, an ongoing issue for a brand, you know, really risky for a brand to be involved in, you know, events like this that have such reputational issues, Surely that's where the money issue is. You know, if the if the sponsors start to walk away and say this is not okay, is that when FIFA start listening? Exactly that. But I think that's a balancing act which will play out over the next the next few tournaments. And you know, it'll be interesting to see what happens with the next World World Cup in North America in terms of redressing some elements of that balance and um, looking at the way that um, that things are handled in terms of many of the issues that have been raised this time around. Um, there is also the fact that there will be inevitable investment in in football that will come off the back of this World Cup. There'll be really positive investment in that. What remains to be seen is how that investment is channeled and where it's. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Uh, whether it's used wisely by FIFA and, and the scrutiny that will be placed upon them in, in terms of what that looks like. Um, but ultimately, I think it will be interesting to see what the next World Cup uh, involves in terms of yeah addressing some elements of balance around some of the things we've seen in the extreme positive and the extreme negative. And I think financial investment and the commercial element of that will be front and centre of that particular conversation. I think you may also see a market share shift of drinks brands thinking, should we be associated with this competition in future? Should we actually shift towards the Rugby World Cup or another sport? Um, especially more female-dominated sports. And I suspect those conversations are going on among drinks brands post this World Cup because they're not really seeing the limelight anymore from a World Cup competition. And obviously there's America next time and, and Budweiser, et cetera, will be loving that. But in terms of future awarded cities and destinations, I think if I'm a drinks brand, I'd be going, well, what else is out there now? Because Qatar has set this precedent. I think there's some balance to be struck there, though, in the sense of I agree with what you're saying, Paul. But I think also we, we mustn't lose sight of the fact that um, drinks brands being aligned with the World Cup still attracts probably the largest number of eyeballs and, and hearts than, than any other tournament. Certainly outstrips the Olympics in terms of engagement and passion from fans. Um, and as I say, just in terms of kind of sheer viewing figures. And I think the opportunities for drinks brands um, obviously don't just stay within the stadium. There's so much opportunity in being able to align yourself as the official drink sponsor beyond uh, what's going on in the in the tournament uh, space itself, but, you know, vastly in other on and off trade spaces as well. So I agree it will definitely be uh, hanging in the balance and being discussed, but I think there's probably some longevity still for for drinks brands in the future. And so to that point, Lucy, there are lots of drinks brands that really support LGBTQ plus issues and are very much out there as sponsors and supporters of Pride. I really struggle to see how those drinks brands can, you know, support those issues and at the same time be involved in, you know, World Cup um, events like Qatar with obviously all of the major issues that that has around LGBTQ plus um, rights issues. So, I mean... It's just a complete contradiction. How, how would you advise a drinks brand to really engage in this sponsorship? Well, that's a really fine line to tread. There are inevitable challenges and things that as that any consultant or brand lead would need to be bearing in mind in terms of approaching that sensitively and approaching that authentically, that if you're going to support LGBTQI rights and um, and initiatives, you can't then... Uh, be engaging with things seemingly completely at odds with that, but actually, I think the bigger picture is quite is quite a lot broader than that. And I think if you look at brands who are aligning themselves um, as as sponsors for the World Cup, they're doing that you know you know for maybe eight, twelve years at a time. They're sponsoring several tournaments, and actually, what they're doing is they're aligning with the World Cup as a property, the tournament as a property, not necessarily 
with the host nation. So in the instance at the moment, they're aligning with the World Cup. They're not aligning with Qatar. Talking of people associated with the World Cup, other than the country of Qatar itself, what do you feel this World Cup has done to the reputations of people like FIFA, uh, who have been criticised for various things, and even Brand Beckham, um, who hasn't come out all that uh, all that well from this? Paul? I think FIFA's had a terrible World Cup so far. Um, you have to divide FIFA into two. Arguably, you have to divide it into its leadership and the brand, and then you have to divide it into the day-to-day, if you like, on the pitch. On the pitch, I think FIFA's had a really good World Cup. Uh, Referees generally have had good decisions to make. We've all got used to the extra time, which often has been another match within a match. And I think uh, they've done pretty well on the pitch and within the stadia environment, as we've said before. But the leadership of FIFA has stuck out like a sore thumb. And it's almost credit to Qatar, actually, that they've let and, and enabled FIFA to take the criticism. The media have shifted their criticism of Qatar to be criticism of FIFA for defending Qatar. And actually, that's a really clever strategy, whether it was deliberate or not, by Qatar. They've enabled FIFA to have the freedom to speak, and, free, and FIFA have therefore taken the rap. So brand FIFA, I think, has suffered enormously because the media have used FIFA as their battering ram. They've used FIFA as their target. And uh, it's not been a great World Cup, as I say, from a leadership point of view this time around. Lucy, what about brand Beckham? Is he? Are you a fan? <laughs> I'm a PR. Of course I'm a fan. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think it's an interesting question in terms of his personal brand, obviously, we've all seen the activity with Joe Lysett, um, calling his actions into question um, and, and the huge impact that's had, you know, front page news that that has generated. But I think we've all seen that Brand Beckham is resilient to challenges of all kinds. And I think we've seen time and again that that, that often his image and, and the, the Beckham image uh, supersedes many of the bumps in the road. And I think realistically, this will be yet another bump in a very long road for Bram Beckham. Yeah, I mean, Beckham is somebody who's great at reinventing himself. He's he's fantastic at sailing through, rising above the ups and downs. Ultimately, that brand is much bigger than most other brands. And he will always come out thriving and surviving, even if he takes a knock in the short term, as he's done before. What do you think about the BBC's response? Obviously, we've seen you know Gary Lineker's monologue at the beginning, uh, and also from Gary Neville uh, choosing to take part. How, how do you think that's reputationally fared? Uh, I used to work for the BBC, so I know a lot about uh, <laughs> impartiality and uh, how it behaves. And I, I think the BBC's had a real issue this time round because it has to be seen to be fair and impartial. So it's had to reflect on the criticisms that Qatar has faced, but equally, it's had to reflect on the positivity of the World Cup. And uh, they obviously didn't cover the opening ceremony, which I think was a poor decision. I think that if you cover a tournament, you cover it from start to finish in its entirety, and you make clear what the issues are in other coverage or news coverage as part of that uh, coverage of the tournament. But they've, they've had a problem because their key personalities who are popular, like Gary Lineker, like Gary Neville, are themselves, of course, 
relatively free to say what they want. And they have been pushing the boundaries and saying what they want. And it's an uncomfortable position for the BBC. It's not the first time it's been in this situation. It's had it with other competitions as well, especially when the World Cup was in was in uh, Russia, of course. So um, they're in a difficult place. And that's when you look at the ITV coverage and think, you are so lucky you're in that position where you're not funded by the licence fee. Great. So I think the million dollar question for us all then is following all of this, would either of you want to go on holiday to, to Qatar? <laughs> Lucy? I must confess it's not top of my list. Yeah, no, me neither. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, it's, it's an interesting question in as much as it's not necessarily somewhere I would personally look to for a, for a, a holiday or a trip. But I wouldn't be surprised if actually there is a, a positive impact on other people's perceptions around this and that it does creep further up other people's consideration lists than they might have previously expected before this tournament. Without doubt, it will, it will creep up other people's lists. I would transit through Doha and Qatar to get to another country, there's no doubt, because they have a really great airline in Qatar Airways. It's one of the best in the world as voted by almost everybody. So I'd definitely transit through. But having been to Qatar several times, it does have a lot going for it. You know, you can do great sand dune bashing in vehicles. You can go to the coast. You can enjoy great food. Um, what I think you need to constantly think about is Qatar within the whole region. As I say, they're all competing against each other. You've got Qatar, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, um, Oman. The whole region is trying to show the world that they are making changes. And I can guarantee you, if we were having this conversation in 10 years' time, we'd all have a completely different view, I think, of that region because progress is being made slowly but surely and they're determined that we all see that progress. Danny? I have been to Qatar, actually, um, a couple of years ago and it felt to me quite similar to Dubai or Abu Dhabi, uh, possibly a bit stricter uh, in terms of its social policies than those two countries, but it's it certainly wasn't as bad as the picture that's being painted just before this World Cup. And I think when people see these images beamed back of people having a pretty good time watching the World Cup, it might soften the image a bit. And it definitely had an image problem uh, a few weeks ago. It still has an image problem. But I think possibly uh, the net effect is, is a good one for Qatar, yes. That's so interesting because I'm probably going to be the odd one out here. I think it's been an absolute disaster and I think it's been the worst advert going. I don't think many people actually even knew about half of the human rights issues that were going on in that country. So I think actually it's been an advert for everything that's wrong with that country. And we've obviously lived with it because of the football. But, you know, I don't think there's going to be too many um, airplane tickets, but they're in my opinion. What what's I think is interesting, I'd like um, Paul's view on this, is that Really, the human rights abuses in Qatar are actually shared by many, many countries around the world. And what I've been quite surprised at is why Qatar became the poster child for this, for Sharia law. Um, and obviously, it's because there's a World Cup here. But you could say the same about many countries across the world, couldn't you? It's a really good question. Uh, I think Obviously, Qatar is in the limelight because of the World Cup. And therefore, when you host a major competition, whether it's a music festival, a, a major football or rugby or cricket competition, you are going to be in the spotlight. You're putting yourself in there because your bid will have covered your suitability for hosting the event in the first place. So media are going to 
research and check the bid documents and see what you're saying and, and hold out to see if it's true. And Qatar has obviously found that difficult in, in light of a very investigative media. Um, but I, I, I'm not sure it's a poster child. I think it's just the fact that countries are growing up. They're now, if they want to play on the world stage, they now have to be investigated. Uh, that's the world we're living in, and therefore we'll find out about all the negatives as much as the positives. Positives, and countries need to take take that on the chin if they want to host future competitions. Great. Well, listen, thank you so much to Paul and Lucy. I think that brings us to the end of this week's conversation. It's obviously been a very vibrant conversation. We'll look forward to see who the actual winners are going to be. But thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Thanks so much. So let's now move on to this week's Topple Flop, where we are joined by uh, editor John Harrington. John, over to you. How are you? Well, I'm well, thank you, Funky. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. So please do reveal who's this week's Top and Flop. Okay, well, starting with Flop, um, and it's the Palace. I've chosen the Palace after um, the damaging racism episode involving Lady Susan Hussey, the late Queen's former lady-in-waiting. For those who haven't been following the story, um, last week... Ngozi Fulani is a British charity boss who is black, posted on social media that she was, in her words, totally stunned after Hussey kept asking her uh, where she, in quote marks, is really from. Um, she posted the exchange on Twitter, and it certainly makes for uncomfortable reading. To be fair to the palace here, I do think they acted quickly. Um, Hussey apologised and resigned. The palace described the remarks as unacceptable and deeply regrettable. And a spokesperson for Prince William, who is Lady Hussey's grandson, uh, sorry, godson, said racism has no place in our society. So the palace did the right thing by acting quickly, but clearly it should never have happened in the first place, in my view. It's a real backstep, I think, um, as the new regime wants to portray itself as somehow progressive and modern. I also think the timing here is really unfortunate for the palace, given we can expect more reputational damage to come um, following the broadcast of Harry and Meghan on Netflix. I can't wait. Yeah. <laughs> Out on Thursday, six parts. It's going to be quite something, isn't it, to see where the, where the royal family are at the end of that. Yeah. I mean, we can expect more allegations related to the behaviour towards the Duchess of Sussex in particular, I think, which obviously in the context of this episode of the past week is, is, is not good. Um, yeah. I mean, so what do you think? What do you both think? Um, how damaging is this incident to the reputation of, of the monarchy? Or do you think it's one of these things that will pass by or... Or is it something that, you know, should be more of a concern? Well, I mean, I thought they handled it very quickly. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because um, I think that lady had been lady-in-waiting to the Queen for many years. So it's surprising this hasn't happened before, really, isn't it? But I think they dealt with it quickly. Um, and, and I... And I think it could have moved on, but I agree that it happening in the week of, of the Netflix documentary, the two of those things coming together is probably making it, you know, a lot more uncomfortable. Danny, what did you think? I was quite shocked, actually, just on a human level, that somebody could talk like that in such an important role when people have been in invited to Buckingham Palace. And that, that's the sort of comment that if you made as a CEO of a company, you would certainly be expected mm. to, to resign, yeah. I think, particularly in the current climate, which is quite right. And um, no, I was quite shocked. I think for a lot of a lot of people would have been. So John to this week's top. Okay, well, I'm going to return to the topic of today's podcast but take a, a slightly different look at it. Um I mean, have you been watching England games this World Cup Frankie? What what are your thoughts? 
I I did watch Santa Call on Sunday night. I actually very much enjoyed it. It was good. Yeah, it was good, wasn't it? Um, so I'm going to leave the sporting analysis elsewhere, but I've been really impressed by how Gareth Southgate and the England team have handled their comms um, in the last couple of weeks. Southgate was Peerweek's communicator of the year last year, um, so I don't want to feel like a broken record, but I do think he's been excellent in recent days. I think when you see him being interviewed, he doesn't shirk from difficult questions. Um, he doesn't get rattled like some other managers do. Um, I think in particular the sensitive way he's discussed Raheem Sterling and Ben White, um, two players who had to return home for personal reasons, um, has been particularly impressive. I mean, I think he's calmness personified, and this seems to have spread through the England camp. Um, I've heard podcasts with journalists saying how the media's been playing darts and doing other things with England players. There have been lots of mini clips online of players looking relaxed, showing off their skills and teasing each other and so on. Um, and by the way, I think Jude Bellium, Bellingham, um, arguably England's best player at the tournament, has come across as being very mature and unfazed in media interviews, despite only being 19, amazingly. Um, so there you go. Um, Frankie, will you be watching the quarterfinals against France on, on Saturday? I have a nine-year-old, so I probably will be, yes. Um, so, yeah, no, I definitely will be. And I, and I very much agree. I mean, I think, you know, we've, we've definitely seen phenomenal leadership, haven't we, from from Gareth Southgate since he became the manager. And I think that, that definitely has continued through this World Cup. Would you agree, Danny? Yes, I would. I think Southgate is a brilliant communicator. And I also totally agree that people like Bellingham have come across as very articulate, very educated. It's quite interesting how footballers these days speak so differently from how they did 20 years ago. So that brings us to the end of this week's show. Thank you for listening and we'll look forward to you joining us next time.